Millennials of Pleasure with our Actually podcast, where we talk all things that enhance women's sexual pleasure. Our interview today is with Dr. Derek Polanski. Dr. Polanski is a psychiatrist in Boston, Massachusetts, who's been in practice for over 40 years. He treats individuals and couples from adolescence through late adulthood. He's an expert in the evaluation and treatment of individuals who have sexual difficulties. And he's also a graduate of Harvard Medical School and was trained in psychiatry at the Beth Israel Hospital in Boston and is a member of the Society for Sex Therapy and Research. His book, Talk About Sex, published in 1995, was based on a column he wrote for several years for FIRST, the Women magazine. In the first half of the interview, we discuss the reality around doctor training and how sexuality is still a hugely missing component, how common it is to have unconsummated marriages, the problem with the fact that the word pleasure is not in any high school sexual education, why current mainstream movie sex is doing society a disservice, the myth of the four-hour Viagra erection, and much, much more. So stay tuned and enjoy. (laughs) Thank you, kid. So I would love to have you share about how you got into your passion work um, and how you entered psychiatry and with a focus on sex and sexuality? Uh, Well, I trained uh, at the Beth Israel in Boston uh, back in the mid-70s. And um, early on in my training, one of my supervisors encouraged me to see couples, which I liked. And what I found is once couples began to trust me, they would often bring up issues around sexuality. And at that point, it was something about which I knew nothing. There was no teaching Mm -hmm. about it. And much to my disappointment uh, after 40 years of trying to teach and encourage people uh, there and at other places, uh, it's still not something that um, I would say probably about 98% of psychiatrists and therapists and mental health professionals are comfortable dealing with. And Mm -hmm. so what I did at that point, the whole field of sexuality was just beginning. And uh, there was the work of Masters and Johnson in the late 50s and early 60s. And then there was an attempt to integrate their approach into a combined couple sexual therapy format. And uh, I began to look into that, read some of what people were writing, and joining a group called the Society for Sex Therapy and Research. And there were about 200 people in that group. We were all flying by the seat of our pants. Now, I should say... Back then, uh, many of my colleagues would point to me and say, he's the sex therapist, and it invariably had a pejorative connotation to it, and it used to irritate me because uh, I saw myself as well-trained in individual therapy and couples therapy and having an additional um, uh, skill that I could bring into uh, the work that I was doing. So at this point, I'd say half my couples are individual, half my patients are individuals, half couples. Some come in with a sexual issue, some don't, some have a sexual issue when I ask about it. So, and the range is anywhere between 15 and now 96. So it's, it's a full range. Yeah, and that's so great to be reminded of um, how even within a field as forward thinking as psychiatry, there is still taboo around sex. Um, has that has that changed since the seventies? Um, and you know, regrettably, it hasn't. And it's not only in psychiatry. I, I can't tell you the number of uh, men that I 
see who've been to urologists for a variety of sexual difficulties, most common uh, erectile uh, disorders, and similarly mm-hmm. the number of women that I've seen. And there it usually has to do with uh, issues around low desire, issues around arousal, and uh, quite importantly over the, the last number of years we've developed much more of an understanding of uh, painful sex for women. And I'm always struck by how women will see me and they have been to their gynecologist who has a limited understanding of uh, the sexuality, who asks few questions and Mm -hmm. who invariably says, well, I've examined you down there. I'm always struck by the down there. (laughs) Nothing matter matter with you, so you ought to go and see a shrink. And uh, invariably Mm. nothing changes because a diagnosis hasn't been made. So Mm. I I wish that there were more um, training programs, uh, medical schools by and large. uh, There are probably about five or six medical schools in the country that do any teaching in sexuality, and I think it's really unfortunate. Wow. So, (laughs) I mean, this has been on my mind. So you can get through all of that schooling of medical, I mean, med school and the trainings and the... I mean, as as you know, you've gone through it, and then uh, we have plenty of friends who have gone through it. And there's just there's absolutely no no course, no discussion yeah. around sexuality. Uh, isn't that amazing? Uh, when uh, I, I was at medical school and was at Harvard, uh, we had one lecture for the entire four years. And I remember one of the outstanding comments the guy made was that most people have sex at eleven o'clock at night, which is the worst time to have sex because everybody's exhausted and fatigued. And that's that's about it. And uh, I I should also mention, you know, that in other disciplines of mental health, psychology and uh, social work, most of them also have no training. Uh, And and I've often seen people, like, for example, um, unconsummated marriages, uh, people who've been married four, five, six, seven years and have never actually had intercourse. And Mm. many times people would say, well, how is that possible? And uh, the fact is, it is. I mean, I've had many people where, you know, the guy may have a variety of sexual issues and not know how to talk about it, and the physicians don't know how to talk about it. And similarly, most commonly for women, it's uh, when they have sexual pain, either what is called vulvar vestibulitis or uh, vaginismus, where there is an involuntary contraction of the muscles around the outer third of the vagina. And these people really suffer. And nobody asks them what's going on. And, uh, you know, even they've seen therapists who don't ask them what's going on. And many times what you find is if not asked, people are really very self-conscious and hesitant to bring it up on them by themselves. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think is really missed more often than not. So, yes, I I would love to learn more about how common that is so that if we have listeners who are thinking, wow, that's me and I don't know how to talk about this or I don't even know where to start learning about it, Uh, I would just love to talk about that further. When I started doing this work, uh, anything around sexuality, uh, many times patients would come in and they would say, we've 
read the books and we've done the videos and nothing helps. And mm-hmm. when I was first doing this, I thought, well, you know, if they've done all of that and they've done exercises and so forth, what do I have to offer? And what I began to understand quite soon was that uh, what I had to offer was to provide a safe and supportive place within mm-hmm. which people could have some of these discussions. And what mm-hmm. was essential, uh, I think, to Pieces. The one was that I would take the lead and uh, really provide a kind of structure around how we were going to talk about it. And the other thing that I do all the time is uh, introduce humor. Um, I, I think mm. that humor is an essential piece of the work that I do. And whenever I hear people's experiences with the therapist where it's all hard work and serious and uh, um, a strain, uh, I, I roll my eyes because I think therapy is hard enough on its own. And if you can have a place where it feels uh, good at times and, and relaxed, that can be hugely helpful. Now, mm. the, the other part of this, and uh, I, I'm not sure how much things have changed over the years, certainly on the basis of the young people that I see in my office, and that is we don't have any models um, in our culture and how to talk about sex. Uh, you know, yeah. when it comes to sex ed in the high schools, very often it is summed up, I think, in one sentence, have sex, you'll die. And what I mean by that is the first discussions about sex are around um, AIDS and a variety of other STDs with graphic photographs and so on, which is, in my view, hardly the way in which to introduce a discussion about the subject. And a word that is rarely used, it turns out, in sex ed in the schools is pleasure. I mean, it just is not, right. not discussed. So um, then you, you think about how parents discuss uh, sex with kids. And in my experience, it is rare that parents have any kind of discussions. And usually fathers feel compelled at some point to have the discussion, usually when the kid is around 13, by which point, having never done it before, the parent is self-conscious and the kid wants absolutely nothing to do with this. Um, whereas mm-hmm. if they've been ongoing conversations about health, bodies, um, uh, penises and vaginas and clitorises and things like that, really at an age-appropriate time, it just becomes a natural part of the conversation. If you also think about what's happening in the media, I think that Sex in the City was... uh, it was really a breakthrough program, and I don't think there's been a whole lot on regular television since then. Because Which is just amazing to me, because it's been now at least... I was having this discussion with a friend just last week about Sex and the City and how revelatory that was, and yes. yet nothing has filled the gap. And I think it's been like... How long has it been, Derek? Well, you know, I I think it's probably much longer than we think because uh, I remember when we had a graduation party or maybe it was even a 21st birthday party for uh, my daughter, which you may have been. It was in New York. And um, it turns out the crew from Sex and the City were filming outside the restaurant which we were in, which was very exciting. But that was... In uh, 2001, 2002, and that's so, that a long time. Yeah, it's been uh, at least 10, if not 15 years. So, yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just am so amazed by the current void and just yeah. sort of 
stunned that it hasn't been filled more. Um, well, what I think was so um, good about the program, although I must say that I found the whining um, uh, <laughs> was a bit much, but but, but that aside, uh, I think that what was important was here were four women who were comfortable with their own sexuality and who wanted um, uh, to really express what was theirs, as opposed to it being okay to be receptive to sex from a male person. Uh, and then mm-hmm. also the use of vibrators and the discussions and so forth. I think that that was enormously helpful. But if you yeah. think about most of the movies we watch, um, the sex is so unrealistic. You know, invariably it's two people with perfect bodies. Nobody ever has to talk to each other about what they like or don't like or <laughs> what they may feel uncomfortable about. Or you, could you please brush your teeth because the garlic is irritating. <laughs> and so what you have is this seamless and rapid rise of intensity with a lot of heavy breathing and at times head banging and then mutual simultaneous orgasm followed by an orchestra that materializes out of nowhere. And um, right. I, I you mean that's not how sex is Right. <laughs> right. And, you know, uh, you have to remember that those people are actors and they're being paid to do what they're doing. And, uh, you know, so, and then I remember, uh, you know, I think that, um, I don't really remember this far back, but Bob Dole, who used to be the Senate majority leader, mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. Um, yeah. went on television advertising Viagra for ED. So yeah. it was the first time that ED was actually something that came on television, be mentioned in the general vocabulary, and then it was discussed at cocktail parties. The thing that I used to hear from many of my patients that was uh, more distressing than the issue of ED was that the disclaimer that if you have an erection that lasts more than four hours, seek medical attention immediately. <laughs> and, uh, that, and, of course, what I had was parents coming in and saying, look, my eight-year-old is asking me about what happens when an erection and what is an erection that lasts four hours. The interesting Mm -hmm. fact about that, uh, kid, is it's never been reported. It is really just an advertising ploy on the makers of these medications. No. Yeah, because the idea, you know, they think, (laughs) well, a guy will watch this and say, oh, isn't this wonderful? I can have an erection for three hours and 59 minutes, and I don't have to go to the emergency room. Uh, That's amazing. Right. Yeah, and it's even... It was a myth that was um, immortalized, actually, in that movie, um, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Did you see yes. that? Yes, yes. Um, so that, that is so funny. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I, I don't know whether you remember also Lorena Bobbitt. She was the guy who, the, the woman yeah, who was, yeah. uh, mm. you know, really abused by her husband. So what mm. she did one night was to cut his penis off, drive off, and throw it out of the window. Now, it turned out that the police were somehow able to find uh, a aforementioned uh, body part and stitch it back mm-hmm. together. I have no idea how they did that. What was amazing was to see the three uh, primetime news people, Dan Rather and Peter, uh, forgotten his name, but the, the, the three of them, choke on saying the word penis out loud on television. Mm. So you see, all of this goes goes back to, you know, well, we don't have a model for talking about it. Yeah. No, it's amazing. We really don't. And, um, and you know, I, 
a big intention of this podcast, actually, is, and really the whole company of O actually, is to be able to at least give people um, a pointing mm-hmm. point, I guess, like sort of say, like, these women are doing this, like sort of that commission of, you know, well, I, I heard this on a podcast, which is sometimes a lot more easy to say than, you know, I, I have this question. Um, but right. I certainly hope that we can have more um, models to look to. Our interview today is with Dr. Derek Polanski. I'm Kit Marie Maloney, and more of the Pleasure with O Actually podcast in just a moment. First, I'd like to mention a project that makes this podcast possible, our O Actually Indiegogo campaign. We now have over 100 backers to our campaign, and we need you to join us in this movement to bring to life the adult films made by women for women that we know will help heal the world through a celebration of genuine female pleasure. Please take a moment to donate or donate again today. It really just takes a moment, and every dollar is appreciated and celebrated. Oactually.com forward slash Indiegogo. It's the Pleasure with Actually podcast. I'm Kit Murray Maloney, and our interview today is with Dr. Derek Polanski. In the second half of our interview, Derek and I discuss why masturbation is actually necessary for teenage development, the difference in masturbation patterns between men and women, the history of vibrators, and Derek's advice to current parents on how to have a real sex and sexual pleasure conversation with your child. Just circling back a little bit, I um, I couldn't agree more with you. Um, my anecdotal experience of growing up was very much a sex education that was focused around fear mm-hmm. and um, really just prevention. So yes, it was right. like how to prevent pregnancy and how to prevent disease. Um, no discussion of pleasure. Well, look, I, I, I think about, um, you know, your experience at school. Now, you know, a... Uh, a prominent, um, high-quality education school. Well, what sort of sex sure. did you have at school? Pretty much none. I think what's really interesting, and um, what I what I hear from people at other schools is is um, not out of the norm, is that I remember we had a very birds and the bees type talk in fifth grade, mm. um, where it was very much like, here are the body parts and here is function. Um, and then in the eighth grade, we had a, I think it was like a every other week class called Choices, mm-hmm. and that was sort of a discussion around drugs and alcohol, a little bit on sex, um, and then really nothing else. <laughs> and so just at the point where you're sort of 15, 16, getting into yeah. a higher likelihood of having sexual encounters was at the time when any sort of... Um, adult-driven conversation around sex yeah. was taken off the table. <laughs> now, I want to just mention to uh, your readers uh, or listeners, um, they're, they're probably talk about some more as we go along, but there are two wonderful books. The one is by a woman, Susie 
Landolfi. And she wrote a book called Hot, Sexy, and Safer. And it was really for uh, adolescent girls, but I found it useful for adolescent boys as well. Uh, you can't okay. get it from a uh, bookstore, but you can get it second used from uh, Amazon. And it's uh, a wonderful okay. book. And it made me think of what you were saying, you know, at a time in which uh, people are beginning to have intercourse. And that she makes the case in a very believable way, which is, um, that masturbation is hugely important. I really believe this firmly, that it's hugely mm-hmm. important as a developmental uh, developmental process so that people can learn about their own bodies and what it is in their own bodies that gives them pleasure, and it's a pleasure that is unique. The other book that I found uh, really useful is a book by a guy, Paul Joannides, called The Guide to Getting It On. And what I like about mm. this one is it covers the waterfront. It is humorous and totally non-judgmental, and uh, really describes what people do, the whole range, and uh, says these are the pluses, these are the minuses, and if you want to do it, this is uh, how you go about doing it. Um, Something else I wanted to mention, uh, Kit, because I'm so struck by the difference in masturbation patterns um, Mm. between men and women. Now, I've been teaching a class at one of the medical schools in town for the last, uh, it's longer than I care to remember, but it's the last 30 years. And um, until fairly recently, and by the way, when I say fairly recently, it's because the the medical school told me that I could not give these questionnaires anymore. I used to give them a questionnaire taking a lot of detailed information about their own sexual um, histories and lives and so on, and it was voluntary and anonymous. So, Mm. you know, you would think this was pretty neutral, but the medical school said no. But what I found when I could do it for must have been about 25 years was some consistent things. First of all, when I asked about masturbation, around um, 85 to 90% of the guys said they masturbated on a regular basis. Now, I found this interesting because we used to say, you know, 90% of men masturbate and 10% are liars. And, um, <laughs> and it's not true because on the comments that I was getting from these medical students, they were saying, we resent the fact that you're suggesting we ought to masturbate. We don't feel that this is right. We oh, wow. feel that the only, um, the only valid sexual expression is with somebody that you love and that uh, masturbation is not good. Well, I was kind of amazed by this, and this was fairly consistent. The other thing that I noticed And this has also been fairly consistent until, say, five years ago, which is the last time I could give the questionnaire. And that was the answer from the women medical students. And there, the numbers of women who said that they masturbated, and it wasn't always on a regular basis either, was between 55 and 60%. Um, And so I began to wonder, you know, what explains the difference? And my theory is that, first of all, masturbation is not talked about a whole lot in school, uh, in sex ed. Uh, and second of all, whenever it is, it's usually framed from the male point of view. Everybody masturbates and right. it's perfectly normal as long as you don't do it too much. But there's no encouragement uh, for girls to explore their own bodies, no encouragement for them to actually look at their own genitals, you know, using a mirror. And um, uh, I 
think that this explains some of the the uh, the differences. And and this is something I know that you've talked a lot with uh, Betty Dodson, and this sure, has been yeah. her her cry for um, now let's see uh, for fifty years. And um, yeah. you know she has. Well, she's incredible. Her. She's just incredible. And if you're listening and wondering who Betty Dodson is, Google her. She has an amazing yes. website and and is just a really important figure to know exists in the world. And we, of course, are big champions of female self pleasure and masturbation. And I don't know if we've spoken about this, Doug, but we actually have started a community of women called Pleasure Pledgers um, who take a pledge to commit to daily orgasms for a month. Um, and it's been really, really just beautiful and fun to see the the power of that. Um, so whether well, it's partner sex wonderful. or self-pleasure. Yeah, and just, just sort of having fun. Again, I love your mention of humor. You know, it's just, it's a pretty fun, playful thing to say. It's like, I'm going to orgasm every day this month. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, and I'm right. Gonna be, I'm going to be in a group of women who think that that's great and who are going to support me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's in such juxtaposition to how we're normally programmed to talk about masturbation and pleasure and orgasms. So. Well, um, uh, I've been close to Betty uh, now for about 15 years, and I will admit mm-hmm. that when I first met her and I went to a, a workshop that she was giving on masturbation coaching, and I mm-hmm. thought, why am I here? This is really going to be weird. And in five <laughs> minutes, I knew that not only was it not weird, but it was enormously helpful, and that started a relationship mm. with Betty. And she, yeah. I, I think of her as one of the most important mentors that I've had because she mm. really helped me get uh, uh, comfortable in my discussions about sex with women. You know, and I, I'd always wondered, you know, what is it like for a woman to be talking to a male therapist, and is that problematic, and so on. But what I found, mm. you know, is that uh, I, I took um, a, a really leap in terms of confidence and comfort. And whenever you have a therapist, when you're talking about sex, where there's a level of comfort in the discussion, what I found is it's infectious, and the person in turn becomes mm. comfortable. And Obviously, I can't do what Betty does in my office because I would be thrown <laughs> off the mass medical Well, if you can't society. give surveys out in your medical school. Exactly. <laughs> but, but, but what I do do is, you know, talk with uh, many of the women that I see about masturbation and talk about its importance and talk about mm-hmm. uh, vibrators and then talk a lot about Betty Dodson. And when you talk about Betty Dodson, that can also be light and humorous. And what I do is I refer them to Betty's website to go on there to see what she has to say, to buy vibrators, to buy her books and so on. And, uh, Kit, the responses have really been wonderful. Um, You know, I uh, I feel like... um, Again, this is something I, I often think about. Well, I'm glad I'm the age I am because I don't have to tell supervisors what I do. But I know mm-hmm. that the supervisors I had, if they heard me talk about vibrators and masturbation with uh, some of my female patients and uh, what to do, um, they would have probably have thrown me out of the residency. And yet, and but I want to emphasize, ironic, isn't it? Because didn't now is this? You have to tell me if this is a myth or not. But it seems particularly ironic in that vibrators—the birth of them—actually happened in the psychiatrist's office, right? 
Uh, actually, no. Yeah. Actually, what happened, it was in the late 1800s, and I mean, it was a combination mm-hmm. of uh, what people knew about psychiatry, but it was also in the, you know, the at that point, the general practitioner who often did a lot of gynecology. And uh, mm-hmm. here was the thought. Uh, you know, Freud was talking about, uh, you know, for women, they had this, what was called neurasthenia, which, uh, you know, was sort of weakness and lack of interest. And it was probably depression. And uh, also, what he found was that uh, many of his patients, and I think about it was back in the late 1800s, would have what was called uh, hysterical paralysis. And that came from the notion hysterical was a wandering uterus. It was a ridiculous idea. But anyway, that's what it was <laughs> back there. And uh, so they used to have uh, a variety of symptoms. And the idea when they would go and see their doctors was uh, the problem was they weren't having what was called paroxysms, which is basically an orgasm. So they would come into the doctor's office, and basically he would do therapy, which was to uh, massage their clitorises until they'd have a paroxysm, and then they would get better. Well, uh, you know, after a while, what the male physicians found was that they were developing repetitive, uh, uh, you know, what you get with uh, typing, what is called repetitive something syndrome. And so... Yeah. That's where electric vibrators came into play. And it turns out that there was an electric vibrator before there was an electric sewing machine. I I love that fact. That is just amazing. Isn't it great? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it's also so ironic that this was over 100 years ago. And what you're saying is that there's still such taboo around vibrators and female masturbation that if you did have to answer to a supervisor, you would be scolded or reprimanded for having Absolutely. these questions. And, you know, so often it's the was, if, if there was a sexual problem, whether it was for a man or a woman, the idea was you need to get into therapy and you need to delve deep into the underlying conflicts that explain this. And to be honest, it never worked. And so I, I want to also encourage your audience, if you are seeing a therapist and around a sexual issue, and the therapist is insisting on talking about the early issues in your family, um, I think that you ought to look into seeing a therapist who is comfortable with the issues of sexuality, if this is a sexual mm-hmm. issue that you're going in initially. Because, uh, you know, when I first started doing this, I was, uh, given my classical training, was uh, somewhat skeptical about what it would be to actually tell people what to do, but I am mm. constantly in awe and impressed with how major issues can be dealt with in a relatively short period of time. And mm. um, uh, you know, I've had people with unconsummated marriages where uh, you know, six to eight weeks after we started meeting, uh, the uh, woman is pregnant. And, oh my goodness! That's so you know, wonderful. and 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 that's the kind of thing uh, that that really makes my day. I I, I would be curious if um, you know on the um, uh, site that you're having women who feel like let's have an orgasm once a day. I'd be curious mm-hmm. uh, to get a sense of was there any discussion between them and their mothers about uh, sexual pleasure. I mean, I've had some women mm-hmm. where that has been. Uh, a discussion, which has really been terrific, but uh, like with men, it's few and far between. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, as you know, I'm incredibly close with my mother, and I, and she, of course, is in full support of what we're doing with O'Actually, but 
Um, to tell you honestly, I, I can't recall a discussion around pleasure. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I, I think if I were to be having some of these discussions with uh, my kids who are all grown adults at this point, but looking back on when they were kids, I, I would do it very differently. You know, I mean, I, mm. I'm in a different place now than I was then. And, um, you know, I'm sorry. Well, so I, I wanted to ask you, like, for, for parents who are listening and yeah. who are wanting to sort of shift this paradigm that we're in, what would be, what, what's your advice? What would you do now? Okay, well, uh, there is a fabulous book uh, called Everything You Never Wanted Your Children to Know About Sex But Were Afraid They Would Ask. Now, I can't remember who the authors are. It's two guys who are, uh, I think, pediatricians in Boston. So if they went on Amazon... We will look it up and we'll put it in the show. Now, now, by the way, I I, I do want to just say a little historical thing. The name uh, really comes from a wonderful book that came out in 1970 by a psychiatrist, David Rubin, and it was called Everything You Want to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask, and it was one of the first really direct books that came out. Uh, So I encourage people... Uh, to, um, you know, particularly the individuals and couples that I see and, you know, when there are issues around sex and periodically we'll talk about their kids and I'll ask them, what have you discussed with your kids? Invariably not a whole lot. And um, I've written some stuff which has, you know, guidelines about what to do, but I talk about with them of the the value of having discussions um, and there, as I mentioned, a variety of books that give some some suggestions here, really from the earliest age. And just anecdotally, there was a woman that I had seen who said she was determined that her son was going to grow up with good feelings about his body and sex. So as soon as he started with language, he, she, you know, this is my hand, this is my eye, and she would talk about, this is your penis, and, you know, this is your scrotum, and you've got testicles, and you know, by the way, girls are different, and girls have labia, and they have a clitoris, and they have a vagina, and a uterus, and ovaries, and she just, you know, built on that, and built on that, and at one point she was saying, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes if you play with your penis, it'll get hard and feel good, and that's called masturbation, and it's fine for you to do it, but don't do it at the dinner table. And <laughs> when she was, when he was around five or six, they're standing in line in the bank, and you know nobody stands in line in the bank anymore. But this was back then. And all of a yeah. sudden, the kid looks up at her and he says, "You know, Mom, I really like to masturbate." And as you can imagine, <laughs> there was then dead silence in the uh, in the bank. But but I thought, you know, that that was, um, you know, a good story because I think that. Right. He, was, he wasn't self-conscious, you know, it was a natural act. And yeah. uh, and, and it, I thought it was just so refreshing that he could do that. And the opposite is true, too. You know, you have so many parents who won't give genitals a name. You know, don't touch right. your hoozy. <laughs> or right, exactly. uh, d- don't touch yourself down there. Um, and, you know, I, I always think about, you know, what the down there is. Or, um, uh, you know, uh, um, it, it's bad for you to touch yourself or, uh, you know, whatever. And, um, right. uh, you know, not giving it a name is, um, I, I think that it sends a, a covert message. And there again, you know, for the people who are listening, think about what you were told in terms of names for genitals. 
and uh, you know, boys, you're dingaling. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I think that it's again unfortunate. Yeah, it is. I mean, we've um, you know we've had a bit of a laugh internally with our team around how you know Harry Potter like nailed it with like, the you know Voldemort was the name not to be said, and I think it has like a really funny and yet powerful reminder of like shedding light and actual verbiage onto words is incredibly important. And when, um, you know, sort of the, the hero in that was not afraid to say the name. And we, there's a parallel there, I think, when it comes to sexual organs, you uh-huh. know, that there's a really, it's really powerful to not name it. And it's not in a good way powerful. <laughs> right, um, right. So we're sending you know, maybe it's covert. I think it's actually a pretty uh, direct message that yeah. there's yeah. some shame there around it um, if it can't be named. There was a period where um, uh, dolls were anatomically correct, uh, which I think actually was a good thing. But, you know, because mm. you think about it, uh, kids are always curious, and so they rip off the clothes, and what is there? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Right. You know, which is uh which is I think uh strange. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well Doug, I of course could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, but I wanna be cautious right. of your time. Well we can talk again um, another time. Exactly. I certainly hope I could. I'm glad you said it before I could <laughs> but I certainly hope we can have a follow up episode. Um, okay. Uh well so much. kid it's 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 been fun for me to talk with you and um you know, I, I I think that what you're doing is terrific, and uh, you know, the encouraging women to be in touch with and own their own sexual pleasure mm. is, I think, what's going to make a big difference in the future. Mm. Well, thank you for that. Okay, uh, um, so we'll please. talk again. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Derek. Thank you so much for listening to the Pleasure with O Actually podcast with me, Kit Murray Maloney. This podcast was produced by the wonderful Molly Ryder, and music was created and provided by the talented Ernest Gonzalez. Ladies, for more tips on women's sexual pleasure and how to prioritize your orgasms, I invite you to join the Oh Actually Pleasure Pledge. You can find all the super hot and fun details at oactually.com slash pleasure pledge, all one word. I look forward to having you join me here next week for another juicy conversation. Until then, remember, please prioritize your pleasure and love what feels good.